Hello podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in today. You are listening to the InScape Quest podcast show and I am your host Trudy Howley. Here I am talking with people about how they engage with their relationships, work and passions. Please share this with a friend and thanks to you we can grow meaningful conversations together one episode at a time. Welcome to this episode with my guest Tabitha Farrar, eating disorder recovery coach, author, podcast host, farm owner, and horse-mad equestrian. I'm excited to get to talk to you today, Tabitha. Welcome. Hi, Trudy. I'm curious about your day and how, how you just maintain this sense of easy, straightforward, calm when you've got so many different things going on in your life? I function quite well in a relatively chaotic environment. And so that sort of suits me to have quite a lot going on, which isn't to say that I don't get tired and like, you know, I'm stressed by it all. Sometimes I do, but I think that just generally, um, I, I like to have quite a few things happening and I get sort of pretty inspired and excited by all of that I do think though um some of that is going to come down to having having um had had an eating disorder for such a long time which is really if you have an eating disorder it's just so incredibly stressful and chaotic that for me now sort of even a really sort of busy life without that on top is really quite manageable it's, okay. it's sort of like an extra level of especially for me my my experience of an eating disorder which was one with a really strong and high um, exercise compulsion and mm-hmm. so I was having to exercise for around uh, six hours a day like like sort of like pretty extreme exercise as well and so even just sort of fitting that all in around work and around other all of the other movement compulsions that I had because I have more than that six hours a day of movement compulsion it's just you know to then if you think about it now being recovered it's like I've really got a six to eight hours extra (laughs) that I I just didn't ever have before and so it's always everything feels easy after you've lived through that sort of thing that's great so it's it's familiar to you to be able to juggle a lot all at once Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. so you recently had an accident and surgery and your wonderful dog Breck also is recovering from surgery and so what have you kind of learned about yourself in having to kind of really slow down for a short time? That I do actually find that quite, um, not necessarily stressful, but it just removed, when, when I removed doing a lot of the things that I really enjoy doing, um, definitely for the first couple of weeks, I felt quite low. And just, you know, I can ride horses. I can just do a lot of the things I was supposed to be doing. I was just supposed to be sitting inside and resting. And although I was 
quite tired and I uh, for at least especially the first week I really wanted to rest so it was easier but then after that when I was my energy came back I really actually struggled with just being like I can't do any of the things I really like doing so I yeah. I, I, I found that difficult um and but also really great when you actually get to the point where you can start doing the things again that you enjoy doing because then you didn't take them for granted and it just is sort of um really life is fun again that's great really enjoying it so I'm glad you're having a good recovery I'm curious about you know this idea of like when people are injured or laid up or if they over exercise and they get injured like it, it can be really challenging for so many people to have their routine disrupted and I'm wondering what happens to somebody when they're they're in the throes of an active eating disorder what what happens to them when their normal life suddenly gets interrupted by an yeah event? so you know injury especially say if we're talking about injury for somebody that has so not everybody who has a restrictive eating disorder has the compulsive movement element but i think the majority do i'd say 75 to 80 percent in my experience do and so that and that compulsive movement element can look like a lot of different things like mine look like a very extreme version of it but and i think a lot of people get a bit confused by that because they might say well i don't have compulsive movement just because they're thinking of the extreme version of meaning that you have to be running six hours a day whereas actually what compulsive movement can look like is um, it can, like a lot of people have compulsive walking when they have an eating disorder and that's just so, you know, you're going for multiple walks, um, mm. a day. And a lot of people even excuse that with, well, I have to walk the dog when really actually the underlying anxiety is not because you think that the dog won't get a walk. It's the underlying anxiety comes from the movement compulsion. And mm-hmm. so I think that it can be really, um, difficult for a lot of people to even understand if they have a compulsive movement element and overlooked a lot of the time. And it's definitely one that's very much overlooked by uh, treatment providers and doctors because everybody's like, Oh, exercise is good for you always. And not really on the lookout for when it's not. But one of the things that can really be a big telltale sign is if somebody gets injured and then continues to exercise through that injury, Mm. and can't do the rest period. So I had I had, because I was doing a lot of running, I had a, lot, I had a fair amount of injuries to my legs. Um, would that, I, I don't think I ever for injury took a day off running. I would wow. run through pain. Um, and I also, I um, had a broken elbow once and I was sort of still cycling with a broken elbow and doing all of these things. You know, I just never took a day off. And so that's actually, for a lot of people, not being able to rest for an injury is a, and having to just continue to do their compulsive movement routines is a big telltale sign that it is a problem. And I think that one of the many reasons that make that even possible for people, because I've known people that have had, you know, really sort of like broken ankles and things like that and continue to do an exercise routine. And you might think, well, how is that even possible? And I do think, or I do believe that when the body is as biologically stressed as it is, when it has a compulsive eating disorder, it hasn't got enough energy. And then it's got this compulsive movement element that 
are sort of, it's not so much that we just develop a high pain threshold. I think that the body artificially doesn't actually cue us in on pain as a, as a person, a well person's body might be. Mm-hmm. And I sort of trace that back to more um, evolutionary and maybe biological aspects. So if you think of uh, migrating animals, you know, if that's, that's a biological stressor for sure to have to go through migration and if a bird has to migrate across the ocean it can't just stop because its wings got tired and i see a lot of that happen in people who have restrictive eating disorders is that there i think that their ability to keep going and exercise day in day out is actually a function of the body thinking like we're in a environment where we can't stop got to keep going got to keep going got to keep going and so mm. you start to, those sorts of traits can be real telltale signs um, Mm. when people have a compulsive movement element so yeah the answer to your question would be that i it, when i had an eating disorder oh hell i would have just been or well, wouldn't have stopped for a day i would have right. been running through that and right. that's not fun either you know like having to do that is quite distressing actually but yeah. not exercising would be more distressing so yeah so it's like a vicious cycle there you know as you are an expert in eating disorder recovery and you coach many people all over the world. Like what are the different ways a restrictive eating disorder can show up? Yeah. So a lot of people have, and I th- I sort of think there's some stereotypical ideas of what say anorexia is and what anorexia looks like. And most of those ideas are sort of like a teenage girl who's very underweight and not eating. You know, that's what restriction is, is just not eating. And so a lot of people don't understand themselves that they may have a restrictive eating disorder and a lot of treatment providers don't understand that their client might have a restrictive eating disorder because there's just this stereotypical view of what that looks like. Whereas really for most people, what restriction, restriction can be quite subtle, but it can be if you're consistently eating slightly less then your body really wants you to eat, then the accumulative effect of that can be quite large. And so people with enduring, long and enduring eating disorders, it was incredibly rare that I ever missed a meal. I did not eat meals particularly frequently. There was a period where I was consistently not eating some meals, but overall, over the span of the years, like you, I ate meals. And so that was mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I could tell myself, well, I, I don't have anorexia because I eat every day. And, you mm-hmm. know, I eat what people might consider to be a fair amount every day. But also I was eating in a way that was restricting every time I ate. I wasn't really allowing myself to eat exactly what I wanted in the quantity that I wanted. Mm-hmm. I was restricting in terms of I was forcing myself to eat foods that I believed to be lower calorie, lower fat than the versions of that food that would have been higher calorie, higher fat. I was restricting in that I was forcing myself to eat just slightly less or sometimes largely less than the quantity of those foods that I really wanted to eat. And I was definitely restricting in that I was not listening to the hunger signals from my body. So I had my set meal times when I would eat. And if my body asked me for food outside of those times, no hope, it wasn't going to happen. And so restriction can look like a lot of different things. And it's very rare that restriction actually looks like not eating. So that's pretty interesting to me um, that you, you use the phrase like listening to hunger signals. So if somebody you know, is on a diet or they're trying to slim and, you know, it's so prevalent in our culture about, you know, fitting into your genes and 
you know, looking a certain way. So if you're on the path of restrictive eating, would you frame that as you're not listening to your body's hunger signals? Absolutely. And we live in a culture actually that um, teaches us to distrust the body when it comes to managing our food intake and our weight. And so we live in a culture that teaches distrust of the hunger signals from the body. And so that's because that's a cultural thing. That's not just something that people with restrictive eating disorders do. That's something that is culturally sort of encouraged a lot of the time and often a lot of the time encouraged by uh, doctors and healthcare providers. And so that distrust, teaching that distrust, um, well-meaning as it might be kind of um, teaching that distrust of the body can has numerous ill effects and not just for people with eating disorders as well, but you know, it teaches us to see the body as well, especially hunger signals to see if that as a vice that the body has to ask us for food. Yeah. If you think about it, it's just a biological system and we have plenty of biological systems and the majority of them are mostly automatic. We don't have to be particularly involved in them. And then there are some of them like, um, our food intake system and our excretion system going to the toilet, which every now and then the body needs our conscious involvement in. And so it communicates to us when it needs that conscious involvement. And because it's not a culturally uh, encouraged thing to ignore the biological cues or for the excretion system when you need to go to the toilet, you know, we just, if the body says, Hey, I need to go to the toilet. You don't even think about it. You just get up and you go to the toilet. And really the food intake system to work optimally, if, if mind and body working optimally, that should be the same, a similar sort of thing. But obviously our, because of people's fear of weight gain, that gets massively distorted. And I think that that just creates a real gap between mind and body and somebody be able to work with their body. And if we're not working with our bodies, our bodies can't function optimally because we're not in the habit of giving them what they need. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you say that, like not giving your body what you optimally need. And from my work, when I work from a somatic, um, you know, body-based view with therapy, it's like so many people just distrust their body's signals in general and distrust the sensation. So as you bring this up, I'm curious, like what percentage of the population actually might have some kind of restrictive eating disorder because of all the complex messages mm-hmm. we, we see in, the, in the, our cultures? Yeah, it's almost, it's kind of difficult not to, honestly, on some level, you know, it's a spectrum, but on some level, a lot of people actually, when I say talk to them about like a hunger signal is just a cue from your body that something needs to happen and it needs something from you kind of look at me as if that's a radical concept (laughs) because it's just so from the age dot instilled in us that hunger is just this vice that humans have yeah not a life-sustaining function what about the difference between hunger and nutrition in terms of you know there's a lot of information out there and about healthy eating whether or not that's correct i don't know i'm curious what your thoughts are about yeah that. and I, I think you hit the, the nail on it whether or not that's correct i don't know and i wish more people would express it like that because the reality 
around nutritional science as a science is that it's a science in its infancy. We really don't know very much. Most of the research and most of the studies, because it's unethical to do it any other way, is correlational. And so mm. it's just, you know, looking at different variables and making drawing sort of conclusions out of correlations, which then most scientific people know what correlation doesn't, isn't, doesn't equal causation. But mm. in nutritional science, that's happening all the time. And it's, it's limited because you, it's not okay to treat people like lab rats. You can't lock them in a room and completely tr control all the variables in their life. And so that's why it has to be that limited. But the issue is not necessarily that nutritional science is in its infancy because most science start off that way. The issue is actually that we don't treat nutritional science and the conclusions that come out of such studies as is as if the science is in its infancy. We take it as if it's word that someone said, oh, there's a correlation between sugar and X, therefore sugar is bad and we all need to cut sugar out of our diets. And most of the researchers never even intend that to be the reaction. It just gets taken by the media and it gets blown up and it's, it's, it's newsworthy. And the reason it's newsworthy is because so many people are afraid of gaining weight and so are constantly looking for things and ways that they can limit their food intake. And so nutritional science is dodgy it really is and one of the scariest things is when we take something like nutritional science and then make blanket statements over how all humans should eat and how all humans should work with their bodies and then also people are taking suggestions from interpretations media interpretations of studies you know, like, oh, you know, if you're craving chocolate, you should actually eat pistachios. That would be a suggestion, I think, that's, that often does the rounds or something like that. And they're taking that suggestion and they're trusting that over the cues from their body. So the body is cueing them, hey, I want to eat something like chocolate. And then they're trusting some media representation of some study that didn't even actually come to that conclusion, but that's the way it was interpreted, and actually making that decision and then giving their body something that the body didn't actually ask for or want. And that's where I think it becomes really problematic. Yeah. So I know you mentioned chocolate and I've, I'm aware of you having eaten double cream and cake in your recovery process. So are there nutritional restrictions when someone's in recovery? Not in my book. No. Okay. None at all. None at all. You know, um, because, um, well, I, I actually think, and I do believe that it is restriction that causes the overconsumption of food. Mm. Um, and so if it's, I don't think humans have had such a big problem with overconsumption of food before the diet industry really got hold. Mm. And so it's often the restriction of a certain type of food or a food group or a nutrient that causes the body to want to seek that food out and when it finds that food actually eat as much of it as possible and so that's generally what happens in eating disorder recovery is we binge eat because the body is in deficit and the body believes that food is scarce and when it gets any opportunity to eat it's going to get as intake as much fat and as much sugar as it possibly can because it's in deficit for those things but that doesn't just happen with people with restrictive eating disorders you can create deficit in a perfect um, create deficit in a non-underweight body by restricting a certain type of food. You can make your brain crave that food and want to eat large amounts of that food. And so I think that a when, when we are really are listening to our bodies, trusting our bodies, then a naturally balanced diet is the result of that. 
because the body doesn't have to um, override you and cause you to binge on a load of foods that you haven't been allowing it to have. You know, the body will always ask for things nicely first. And then if you restrict, 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 there does usually come a point where the body just says, all right, I'm going to take it. And that's when a binge happens. And so that's why a lot of people who control, shall we say, their sugar intake are also people that say, I can't have sugary foods in the house because if I have them in the house, then I'll binge on them. Well, there's a reason for that. And if you stop trying to control your food intake, yeah, you'll go through that binge period when you have all that food in the house, but you'll also come out the other side of that and the brain won't feel it needs to do that all the time and you'll be able to have all those foods in the house and you'll just eat them when you eat them and want them and you won't when you don't. So it's a process that we have to go through really to achieve a balanced diet. And it's scary for a lot of people, the, the idea of unrestricted eating and that idea of, well, I'm just going to drink pints of double cream and eat your whole chocolate gattos like I did. That's a scary concept. And, but it's also the understanding that, that you go through that to get out the other side and get to balance. And it's the restriction that causes that huge consumption or the desire to. When you talk about food being scarce, what at what point does the the body and the brain decide that food is scarce so the way i look at um restrictive eating disorders is like a you know a, as a biological function um and that we have or when i say we i mean the industry has cindy buick and her team have shown that eating disorders have a genetic base so there's there's a there's a genetic base you either have the pre genetic predisposition for an eating disorder or you don't and what triggers that those genes to become active or start working is energy deficit so consistently not consuming as much food as you need and so then i look at that from a you know well, why would some people have a genetic element to them that says when they consistently consume less food than they need this thing happens which causes them to not want to eat very much and most of us to want to exercise a lot and so if we look at um sort of animal models it looks very close to migration and um, animal migration, say if a bird, what triggers the desire to migrate is lack of food in the environment. That is the signal to the bird's body. And so that's not because the bird's looking around the environment and saying, well, it doesn't look like there's much food here. What's happening is the bird is starting to consume less and less and less every day until it gets to a point or a threshold, which then triggers that migration response. So that's how that works in birds. And that sounded to me very similar to what had happened to me. I consistently didn't eat enough food, you know, not massively. I wasn't dieting massively or anything, but I was eating less than I needed. And then at some point I got to a threshold where I couldn't reverse it. My desire to move, my desire to exercise really took off and migrating animals also, one of the functions of migration in most migrating animals is that the brain starts to disincentivize feeding behavior, which makes sense if you think about it. If there's not very much food in the environment, the brain doesn't want that animal to hang out and hunt for food. That brain wants that animal to actually be not very interested in food so it can get on with the process of moving and migrating out of there. So disincentivization of feeding behavior is also present in migrating animals. And that's what felt what my eating disorder felt like to me. I just felt like I was I had I was disincentivized to eat. It's not that like I didn't want to eat, it's not that like I wasn't hungry. I just felt huge anxiety about doing so and I felt like it was wrong to do so. I couldn't explain the wrong. I couldn't explain why I felt that. It just felt like that. And it did feel like a very biological thing to me. It felt like something that was just happening to me that 
I didn't even necessarily want to have have happen, but it mm-hmm. was, you know, like every, our bodies are really fantastic, wonderful things that have evolved over years and years and years for a large percent of the population to have this genetic element to them that causes them to be disincentivized around eating or reluctant to eat food and want to move a lot. There has to just, it doesn't just be random. There has to be a reason for that. And the only reason that I could really made sense to me was that it's a human form of migration. And so food scarcity in thousands of years ago, when um, famine was one of the biggest threats to humans, like that's what would create the environment of scarcity. But for those of us that have that genetic element, which is probably all to do with a very sort of old part of our, of our genetics and evolved part of our genetics. Scarcity now isn't being necessarily created by famine, but the idea or the perception of famine as far as the brain is concerned is being created by dieting. This is really fascinating in terms of like helping people um, who are in the process of an restrictive eating disorder like you mentioned the point of you couldn't reverse it, like you cross mm. crossed that threshold. Are there ways that other people can look out for friends and family, roommates, if they think a restrictive eating disorder might be becoming problematic? Yeah, yeah. I think that one of the biggest and hardest things in our current culture is that disordered behaviors such as food restriction and compulsive movement are very glamorized and normalized Mm. in our culture. Um, And so that's, that's really difficult, especially because weight loss is also congratulated in our culture. And so even if you can look at things with the perception of not all weight loss is good, not all exercise is healthy, not dietary, dietary restriction is not Help, you know, healthy. And if you start to even look at things with that perception, and really what we're tackling with all of that is a lot of implicit bias because we have grown up and evolved, and, and you know, most of us are existing in a culture that just believes it is a truth that weight loss is good and weight gain is bad and thin is good and fat is bad. And so I think for a lot of people, you've got to be able to see your own implicit bias first before mm-hmm. you can then actually sometimes be able to remove that filter and look at somebody else and see that stuff that they're doing is problematic. Because while people have their own um, not very conscious bias that while well, weight loss is always a good thing, exercise is always good, you know, weight gain is always bad, it's difficult for them to even see these behaviors in another person and see how detrimental they can be. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the time when the person does have a restrictive eating disorder, we're absolutely miserable. I hated exercise. I hated mm. running. I was felt compelled to do it. And it didn't really help that when I went to the doctor presenting horribly underweight, you know, all, all intents and purposes, you know, not, my body wasn't functioning very well. And they'd ask me, do your exercise? And I say, yeah, I'm in the gym three times a day. And they'd say, that's great. That's good. That didn't help oh, wow. me, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's just things like that. But that's because they didn't even think about that reaction because they have this bias that exercise is always a good thing. Even when we said it without thinking, but you know, I was sort of desperate for someone to say, stop it. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and it, it's very difficult in this culture to find that person that will say, stop it. Um, whether I would have stopped it or not, I probably wouldn't. But then even just having somebody that could see that I wasn't, what I was doing was not healthy would have been helpful. 
interesting when you say about just stopping it's about how therapists work as well when they're not educated about eating disorders and you know there may be a very complex reason why somebody's developing a restrictive eating disorder or reasons but in terms of helping somebody in the here and now how important do you think it is to just be very pragmatic about it rather than going into all the kind of psychodynamic reasons of why yeah, you might I, I think like first and foremost understanding that if a person does have a restrictive eating disorder that creates or puts a huge biological stress on the body and if the body is biologically stressed you know it stresses the entire organism and mm. so if you are seeing somebody who is presenting with what could be many different sort of diagnosable uh, mental health issues i feel like unless you've addressed the biological stress which could be the foundation of all of them you can't really have a firm diagnosis on any of those things or really be able to understand any of those things mm-hmm. so it's like always look i think look for the biological stress first because a person who's restricting food can present all different sorts of ocd high levels of anxiety lot there can just be a lot of things like i think a lot of people thought i was autistic because mm-hmm. of just the way i was i was very avoidant of so antisocial because social situations often mean sitting and eating food so i avoided those like the plague and all those things mm-hmm. um, and so i think that like a lot of people were looking at me and diagnosing all of these mental health issues rather than actually looking at the, and because again, their implicit bias won't let them see the biological problem of this person's not eating enough food. Um, and funnily enough, when the biological stress, the restriction was addressed, a lot of the other things that would have been diagnosable in me went away. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so I think you, you've always got to look for that first because otherwise what happens or what tends to happen is somebody gets diagnosed with something else and then they're trying to treat that thing when it, that really wasn't the root of the problem mm-hmm. because the body's biological stress, biologically stressed. And um, there are also a lot of complicated factors like trauma can lead to a person not eating enough food consistently. And that if that person has the genetic predisposition for an eating disorder that can lead to the development of an eating disorder but that in that sense the trauma is a contributing factor to energy deficit the trauma is not the cause of the eating disorder the genetic predisposition and the energy deficit those are the cause the trauma contributed to the energy deficit so it's a contributing factor not a cause and i think that that really gets misunderstood a lot because a lot of people will see somebody with an eating disorder find out that they have a history of trauma and say right we have to treat the trauma mm-hmm. and so but they're all the time that person is still in energy deficit they're still under biological stress and that's not getting any better mm. and so yes you absolutely have to work with the trauma and you have to get them out of energy deficit those things have to happen simultaneously Thanks. Right. And if anything needs to come first, the energy deficit, getting out of energy deficit needs to come first because when we're in energy deficit, processing trauma and going through all of that, which is very energetically draining, doesn't work very well. You know, our brains aren't functioning optimally. So trying to do something like process trauma often doesn't have great results when a person has an eating disorder. Yeah, so it's similar to people with substance use issues as well. Like you, you need to get that 
dealt with before you dive into the trauma healing work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so really that's a really good sort of like it, it is like that and it's not at all saying that trauma work isn't important it really mm -hmm. is but it's just i feel like a lot of the time the tendency is to go for well the trauma is causing the eating disorder so therefore we have to treat the trauma it's like it yeah so when you're um in the process of helping somebody kind of we replenish their energy deficit do you recommend getting genetic testing done mm -mm. i mean because it's not really we're not really that far forward with it they only discovered the genetic elements i mean it's been it's been suspected for many years but only i think it was 2017 when that genetic element was actually properly discovered and so there's no widespread testing for it and ultimately it doesn't really matter because if mm -hmm. somebody's in energy deficit, they're in energy deficit and they could be in energy deficit and suffering all of the consequences of energy deficit and not actually have a full blown eating disorder triggered. But, you know, they're still not eating enough food and that is still making them and their body miserable. So in a sense, we don't necessarily if we can establish that somebody is restricting food, then the answer to that should always be get them out of that restriction because it usually makes people very miserable. Making that um, shift to getting out of restriction, do you work with people when they're actually in, that, in the midst of that process or a bit further along in recovery? Oh, I would love to say that I get to work with people when they're further along in recovery because the treatment system looks after them when they are you know, critically underweight or, or in that mm -hmm. sort of danger. But unfortunately, that's just not how this works in this country or many other countries. Um, a lot of, ironically, a lot of treatment centers won't take somebody if they are at a very low weight because it's a liability to them. Mm -hmm. And so you get quite a lot of people that don't actually have any options when they're at a very low weight. So it's 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 really difficult i do end up working with a lot of the time with people where i'm just sitting there thinking like you need to be in the hospital right now this is absolutely inappropriate yeah but what, there's no other option that option isn't there for them mm. and so i mean you don't really want to get me started in the problems in the eating disorder treatment field because it's just it's such a minefield and it's um and and it knows it as well I mm -hmm. think <laughs> everybody knows it it's just not changing fast enough and that's that is the reason that people still die from eating disorders mm -hmm. uh, this is not an unsolvable problem you know like we we know that full recovery is possible for people but a lot of people are just not getting the treatment that they need and if they are getting treatment is treatment that still has its basis in um fat phobia and actually and it also encourages restriction which is again very ironic but it does happen in treatment centers a lot yeah so i i really think what you said about it's not changing fast enough is so important because it seems like so many things at the moment that are kind of coming into our awareness of yeah these things really need to change and change quickly and what is the hope um, that's out there in terms of culture and community changing. Oh, yeah, you know, for eating disorders, actually, there is a lot of hope. And um, that's because, because the system fails so many people. There's actually a large body of people in recovery that are going and finding different routes. And so 
somebody like me who's a recovery coach you know if the system was working optimally i wouldn't have i wouldn't exist i wouldn't need to exist because people could just go through treatment and then they be recovered they wouldn't need to be going and out of pocket themselves paying somebody like me to talk them through it mm-hmm. and so i actually look forward sort of to the day when, when independent people like me aren't needed because we actually have a system that employs people to put people through recovery, but that's just not going to work for a long time because um, unlike other um, mental health um, issues or recoveries, the eating disorder treatment system still doesn't believe that recovered people are a particularly valuable voice. I think that's changing a lot, but the reason it's changing is because it's, it's the ground movement that are actually people in recovery are going and finding people like me and saying, I need somebody who's been through it to help me get recovered. And so the treatment centers are getting less business because of the ground movement towards actually using recovered people to help other people recover. And so I think that that is what the change will be. And I imagine it, it's already starting to happen. Like treatment centers are starting to cotton on like, Oh, you know, there's a big business in recovery coaching and we actually need to bring these people onto the inside because we can make money. (laughs) It's all about money, isn't it? But when people, people are voting with their, with their money at this point, I think when it comes to eating disorder recovery and unfortunately a lot of them go through the traditional means and they waste a lot of years doing that and then don't get fully recovered and then they seek other alternatives and so I I think it is from the ground up it's changing and the fact that there is um, money to be made out of the change is what will inspire the change which again is a little bit depressing but it's just the way recovering from an eating disorder similar to sobriety in terms of, do you, okay, so do you see relapses or you're just recovered? When, you know, a large part of recovery for me, which I talk about and write about a lot, is neural rewiring. So that's rewiring the belief systems that actually cause a person to want to engage in behaviors that suppress their body weight. Mm-hmm. And so, like I talked about before, a lot of those belief systems are culturally created within us. But when a person goes through recovery, they really need to actively rewire and challenge and change those belief systems that their brain has about what health is, what their body should be, and all of those things. And so if somebody does what I call rewiring with their fear of weight gain belief system, if they rewire, if they remove, if they teach their brain that weight gain is not a threat to them, then they no longer feel inspired to suppress their natural body weight because they're not afraid of gaining weight. So they don't need to restrict food because they're not afraid of gaining weight. And that's what makes recovery sustainable. It really actually takes us back to, you know, most people, if they think about it, their most free point with, and their most sort of at ease point with their body and eating is when they're about three to five years old. You don't think about it too much. You don't have all of these judgments. You haven't had all these things taught to you by the culture about you shouldn't eat what you want and all of those things. And you just happily get on with it. And when you're hungry, you eat. And when you're not hungry, you don't. And that's how it's supposed to be. And so really the process of neural rewiring is unlearning a lot of the judgment around food and eating and things that we think we know about nutrition and taking ourselves back to just having that harmonious relationship with our bodies where we don't fear eating and we don't fear weight gain and so if somebody can do all of that work that rewiring work then say again how important are family systems in in this picture 
You know, I think that there, especially if the person with the eating disorder is, uh, you know, a teenager or child, they're just, it, it, family is, is everything. And I think that somebody below the age of 16, somebody who was living in a family trying to recover without the help of that family is, is hugely problematic. You know, the, the family, if involved in a person's recovery from an eating disorder, it's just a game changer. It really is. And I think that, again, a lot of what therapists are maybe taught erroneously about eating disorders is that it's um, family systems that cause the eating disorder. Whereas now we're looking at it and we're like, no, we can see it's biological, it's genetics that cause the eating disorder and it's energy deficit. You know, so it's actually not this dysfunctional family problem. And you know, I think that especially years ago, one of the biggest problems with eating disorder treatment is that people were... with eating disorders were being removed from their family units because it was being assumed that the family unit was the actual dysfunction or cause of the eating disorder. And, you know, really actually bringing the family in and explaining to them what needs to happen in recovery and actually bringing the family in and being part of the recovery and family-based um, treatment, family-based therapy for eating disorders has been shown to just be one of the most evidence-based practices for getting a young person, especially recovered from restricted eating disorder that said it's not easy a lot of people don't want to recover and don't want to eat so it puts a lot of pressure on the parents that are trying to get their kid to eat but it still works i love that you said that it would be great at some point that when you're not needed if you got to the point in your life where you're not needed as a restrictive eating disorder recovery coach how would you like to spend your days probably end up buying more horses <laughs> riding more horses yeah I do love writing because so, I do a lot of writing you know with all the books and stuff I love writing but I'd love to try my hand at like writing some fiction or something like that you know yeah I actually did write a book based on my pony club experiences but I only drafted it and I've never got around to finishing that so I definitely I think I do love writing do wow. more more of that but not always writing about eating disorders. Yeah. Well, I'd love to read the Pony Club story sometime, but in the meantime, <laughs> um, where can our listeners find you? What's your website and your books you've written? Yeah, it's uh, abathafra.com and there's loads of free resources on there. So there's, um, I, I, there's uh, YouTube, podcasts, blogs, um, the only thing that you have to pay for is the books and those are not very expensive either because I just made them as accessible as possible. So, but really you didn't even, you don't really have to actually buy any of the books because everything's in the blog. It's just not very structurally laid out in the blog, you know, because that's okay. how blogs work. So if you can piece together all the blogs, then yeah, you don't even have to buy a book. Okay, great. So that's tabithafarrar.com and then you have your own podcast as well. Well, thank you so much for today. Oh, it's been really great speaking to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Inscape Quest podcast show with me, your host, Trudy Howley. If you like my show and want to know more, you can follow me on Instagram at InscapeQuest and send me your questions or submit things that you'd like to hear about on your podcast. 
Thank you for listening.